0: This episode of the Naturist Living show, Naturist Architecture.
1: This episode of the Naturist Living show is brought to you by Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. At Bear Oaks, we offer traditional naturist values in a modern setting. Free your body, free your mind. www.bayoaks.ca
0: Welcome, dear listener, to episode number 83 of the Nature's Living Show. I mentioned in the last one that I was, uh, I had another business in architecture, um, architecture and construction business, but design professionals, so interior designers as well and en- engineers. We, um, we do education for them. And that's, the funny part about that is that I ran across an article a little while ago. Um, that seemed to combine both my passion for naturism and my business at Bear Oaks and my AECdaily.com business on architecture. Um, There is an associate professor of history at California State University, Long Beach, uh, Sarah Schrank, and she wrote an article in the July 2012 issue of the Journal of Urban History called Naked Houses, The Architecture of Nudism and the Rethinking of the American Suburbs. And that caught my eye. First, because that was an interesting topic, as why which is what we're talking about today. Um, but also because it fit with what I'm doing. I, I mean, I do like architecture. That's why I'm involved in that other business. And it was an interesting idea. Um, it was also a, a product of the fact that I'm doing research at the University of Toronto as part of my uh, the course that I'm teaching there and also my continuing interest in the academic... Um, side of naturism as well So all of those came together To find this uh, this particular article And I read it And it was very interesting um, I mean, architecture is influenced in many ways um, it's, it's generally not that different for naturism But there are things that are unique You know, Certainly uh, for baroques We don't have gendered specific washrooms Now that's not specific to naturism That's a trend in some places right now as well And also, I've been to nature parks and nudist parks that have gender-specific washrooms. But um, you definitely don't need them when you're used to seeing each other nude, in my opinion. Uh, Showers. I mean, we generally all places have combined mixed-gender showers that I've ever been to. Um, They can be outdoors without any screening. I always tell the other campground owners in Ontario that I have the least expensive showers to build. You put a post, hot and cold water, and you've got a shower you don't need you know, screening or shields or anything like that. So, And people prefer it. I certainly prefer to shower outside as well. You need a place to undress, and that's not common everywhere. But it is something that's, that I think is important, and I'm going to be implementing in the redesign of the main building. That transition space where you take your clothes off, you find it in, in public pools, right? You generally walk through the locker room to get to the public pool. And that makes a lot of sense for a nature's place as well in the main buildings uh, or near the entrance. You need a place to change. People don't necessarily like to change in public or uh, in their car. And certainly if it's cold, that's a problem. So locker rooms is another example. Dealing with the general public is an issue that has impacted how people design uh, nature's places. Because especially in the early 20th century, uh, you, you could not be nude um, when suppliers were coming or uh, I don't know the general public was coming to deal with things delivery people that kind of thing so there was a, a usually a separation perhaps so a building further at the front or a long driveway and hiding it it's not an issue at Bear Oaks. we don't uh, do that at all we uh, people say well what about people who deliver well they're they're the ones who are uncomfortable and they just have to deal with it and nobody's ever ref- well that's not true one Person one company had a problem with one delivery person refusing to, in 10 years, had refused to deliver uh, to Baroques because of the nudity. But generally, it's not a problem. And the staff is plenty comfortable, as you've heard in past episodes. It's almost kind of a sport for them. Um, There's other uh, issues that have impacted design, not necessarily naturist or nudity-specific issues, but I've seen some interesting stuff. So, for example, Glen Echo had cabins that were narrower at the floor than at the, and they got wider. And the reason they did that is because of a building code issue that says that over 100 square feet you have to have a, a building permit. So they would build a floor space that's 100 square feet and then we get wider um, to have more space in the cabin and made some interesting designs actually as a result. So, and money, um, that's also caused some interesting design. Uh, consideration when there 's limitations, but again, not specifically specific is are is an issue that has a, affected a lot of the design in nature 's clubs because you you in most places you can 't be seen from the road in fact, in France for a long time, the rule was you had to have a double uh, shield so uh, maybe a couple fences or a wall and the fence or something like that in order to make sure you were consistent with the law um, and in the homes, we had specific uh, requirements because people of course generally did not leave in nature's uh, parks or resorts they lived in homes and uh, there was there's a number of articles that have been done the image for the the podcast is of the mason family you can see their backyard and the um, the backyard they bought the house specifically for it but then designed the yard around it uh, but as sarah points out in her article. Some people even went as far as uh, designing houses specifically for naturists, which are very interesting. So I gave her a call because I wanted to talk more about it. The article is actually uh, as much about the sociology of naturism, the evolution of the ideas of where it came from and where it ended up with and how it diverged. It's actually a very good summary of that. Um, And as you can tell from her title, she's a history professor. But the architecture puts an interesting lens on that story. And she does bring in some really interesting stories and shows floor plans of houses that were done uh, specifically for naturist or nudist families. So I gave her a call. We actually had a lot in common. Besides the architecture, uh, she uh, speaks French fluently. She's Canadian, as it turns out, despite being in California. And she has an interest in naturism. So I'm not sure if I can find another person that would have four things like that in common with me. Uh, But she did. And we had a nice chat, as you'll hear. So why don't we start? If you can just introduce yourself and your position and what you do.
2: Sure. Um, My name is Sarah Schrank. I'm professor of history at Cal State University, Long Beach, and I teach courses in American urban, cultural, um, and gender history, and I also do specialty classes on the history of the body, um, the history of popular environmentalism, and public art and monumentality.
0: Wow. That's quite a broad range of interesting topics.
2: Thank you. It is. Um, they've evolved over time. Um, and to me, they make a lot of sense together because it's really about understanding modernity and looking at these different types of sites, whether they be cities or bodies or artwork, as sort of the sites by which um, people have understood their 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 position in the world.
0: Well, and from all that, you wrote a very interesting journal article that I found and I used in my uh, class at the University of Toronto called Uh, Well, I don't remember the title of the the article, but it's on nudity and naturism and nudism and architecture.
2: Yes, that piece um, is called Naked Houses, um, the Architecture of Nudism and the Rethinking of the American Suburbs. And um, it was a piece that I wrote when I first started working on the book that I'm completing now called um, Free and Natural, Naked Living in the American Cult of the Body um, that the University of Pennsylvania Press will be publishing um, next year. And that book essentially came out of my previous work on Los Angeles and um, sort of fights over modern art in the city and when I finished the first book, I started thinking about how, when people think about Los Angeles in the 1950s, in the middle of the 20th century, they often thought as a cultural center, a media center, an arts center. And I thought, well, in the late 20th and early 21st century, how do people think about Southern California? And I thought they think of it as a place for different types of bodies, the way people look, and that was that's kind of the more. Um, appropriate trope for thinking about this place and that led me to like a much larger set of questions about why do people think about the West as so associated with body culture and then this was very very kind of early days in this project on nudism but I started asking questions about is it possible to find a body culture that isn't simply about narcissism and exercise and that kind of landed me in the nudist archives in South Florida and it was through that that I ended up writing this piece on um, the architecture of nudism, and, and leading to my my later book project. So. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the trend. That's how, how I got from art in L.A. to um, make architecture in Tampa, Florida, if <laughs> that well, makes any sense it, at all?
0: It does make sense, although – and that's a very narrow uh, field, the architecture. Uh, frankly, I'm surprised you were able to write as good and as interesting of an article because uh, I didn't know there was that much material on it. But so how did you happen to like connect to that topic? Because it doesn't sound like architecture is specifically anything you're normally working on.
2: Um, Well, I did write about architecture in the sense I was interested in vernacular artworks that people build in their own kind of backyards. So the the art I I write about in my um, original projects from some time ago, um, were often formal art. like You'd see museums and um, public art that like you'd see, you know, public sculpture, but also vernacular modern art. like Things like, like like the watchtowers, which you may have heard of, that were built by an immigrant Italian in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, but that's not what I went into the nudist stuff thinking about. It was more what happened as I was reading thousands of nudist magazines, which are, of course, this kind of wonderful visual trove of material about this subculture. And I noticed one of the things I started really noticing in the stuff from the 1950s was how suburban some of the representations of naked living were and how much interest people had in both showcasing the insides of their homes, but also like designs for taking cheap Suburban houses and turning them into kind of landscapes for everyday naked living. And once I, and people weren't necessarily saying that specifically in the magazine articles, but I could sort of see it through the visual culture as it was displayed. And because of previous research I'd done and thinking about this broader body project, I'd study the works of Schindler and Richard Richard Neutra and other modernist um, architects who were interested in the relationship of the body to sunlight um, to space. And so I started seeing connections between this kind of high modernist body architecture and this kind of more vernacular stuff on the ground. And that's sort of how I started seeing the things connected.
0: Now, it's interesting that you said that it was mostly suburban. Do you have any theories as to why it was focused on that?
2: I do, um, largely because urban architecture, and, well, urban spaces were not particularly welcoming to um, nudist living. That, you know, in the United States, and that's really the context in which I've worked, um, organized nudist coming out of the various nudist organizations had you know, tried to get nude beaches allocated as early as the 1930s in places like Chicago, um, also late, a little bit later in Los Angeles, and were really unable to do so. So you have a kind of retrenchment of um, nudists and naturists into rural areas in the 1930s, 1940s, um, because they were having so much trouble getting spaces in cities. And if they did try to live naked, and were seen could be arrested for that and often were. And so the rural areas were, were safer. And so this is when people start buying up land and having private spaces and private camps. And even those would still cause problems for local law enforcement. And so once suburbia really started to um, grow um, astronomically in the 1950s and 1960s, um, people had had the space, um, they had a, a great deal of privacy because the way American suburbia was constructed was really about atomized family living. So, you you know, you can close, if you close your garage and you build your high fence, people can't really see you. And it produced a type of space in which the naked living could be done um, without too much surveillance. And so I think that's largely why suburbia was so, so useful um, for this type of kind of natural um, living experiment.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So what did you find in terms of naturist or nudist architecture?
2: I found that people are really creative, (laughs) and I found a lot of do-it-yourself sorts of projects. So what people often did, well, they'd start with backyards, and particularly if they were in places like Florida or California, where the weather is pretty good um, all year round, um, there was a sort of... effort to try to have indoor outdoor living and this of course was kind of certainly in southern california was kind of part of what was on on deck for the lifestyle here anyway whether or not you are a nudist the idea that you can kind of move inside and outside your house pretty seamlessly and um, wealthy people had long commissioned houses that allowed you to do that Um, but suburban houses with sliding doors and decks and things in the backyard allowed people to do it too Um, to kind of convert them into nudist houses involved making Fences higher, and so sometimes people just built higher fences, and other times they would take fiberglass and just add it to the top of a wooden fence, and sort of make it another couple feet taller to prevent neighbors from looking in. Um, the other thing people did was um, kind of build front lobbies that were in, in their houses that were kind of closed off, and they would put their front hallways at slightly offset angles. And the way that and that the purpose of that was that if someone came to the door unexpectedly, you know, like the UPS guy, um, someone could go answer the door without everyone else inside having to get dressed because the sight lines were were cut off. But they weren't cut off in such a way as to look suspicious or awkward. Um, People also built skylights into their houses. Sometimes people did manage to put in indoor pools, um, although their houses had to be a fair size to be able to do that. And so just lots of things like that, a lot of enclosed patios. And so much of it was about trying to get the body exposed to Sun as well as being able to live nakedly without having people um, see you
0: did you see any of that for outside of the United States or were you just not looking in for in, in Europe or any of that
2: I really focused my attention on the United the American context because that's those are the sources that I had. Um, I have trouble believing that people in Europe didn't do similar types of things, but this, but the story of American suburbia is on such an enormous scale that I had so much more to work with. Um, But Mm. I suspect that you could find similar types of projects um, in in parts of Europe as well, where the climate would allow it for sure.
0: And the, the journal articles seem to focus on uh, these kinds of projects, mostly in the, you know, 60s, 70s, maybe 80s a little bit, but not recently. Is it because you think it's stopped?
2: It's. I would say I don't. I think it's changed. And my well, and so my my weigh in on this is that first of all, there seem to be a lot more private places for people to go to be naked if they want to. So the resort culture around American nudism has really taken off um, in the last 20 years. And so for people, so in some ways there's not such a demand to like refurbish one's own home, but there's lots of places to go. And for certain demographic people with the money to go to resorts, um, there are plenty of them, like thousands of them. And it's kind of part of a new resort nudist tourism that I think is pretty big in Europe as well. It probably has been for much longer than it's been in the United States, but that's certainly been true for the last couple of decades. So in some ways, just there are other places to go, and you aren't just restricted to your own house. Um, and, but in addition, there are, in Tampa, Florida, for example, which was kind of ground zero for nudist suburbia in the United States, mm-hmm. starting in the 1940s and 50s, those places are still there, um, Land Lakes, and um, I forget a couple of the other um, sort of prefab suburb. there. Some of them are prefab suburbs. Others are actually trailer parks that evolved into um, proper houses and proper uh, and proper suburbs. Are still there and very large and with thousands of residents. And those are pretty much entirely nudist. So it is still happening, and it does seem to be a growing. Interest. In fact, it was actually the subject of a television, a reality TV show here in the United States just a couple of years ago. I, I don't remember what it was called, but it was about.
0: It's called buying naked.
2: Buying naked with yes. Jackie Youngblood, I that's believe. Right. And and so that's that's true. That's that is, um, a realistic depiction. And those and the interesting thing is those suburbs go back to before World War II when they were simply um, camps. And then, as Tampa and the suburbia grew up around the part of southern Florida, or part of Florida, sorry, it's not really southern Florida, um, the suburban sort of landscape just took hold.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't know if you ran across this. There's also a neighborhood uh, in the Tampa area that was built where the the street is on the outside. But all of their backyards are linked. It's like a, 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 a semicircle crescent, and they have a, a joined area that is nudist, and with so it's kind of a condo shared space. But it means that you can have your uh, grandchildren come over, and they are not exposed. Pardon the pun to the nudist aspect.
2: That's really interesting, and that makes perfect and that makes perfect sense to me. And that would be the place where I would imagine that um, it's. That the culture has been around for long enough that those types of um, changes could be made to the built environment to allow just that. Like you can, exp- you can expose those who want to be, and and, those, and and protect those. I guess I'm not sure that's really the right word, but mm-hmm. not expose those you don't want to.
0: Now, the, what you're describing to me also suggests uh, a change, because you're talking about uh, places to go, vacation, leisure. Um, but the nudism, naturism of the Maurice Parmalee times would mm-hmm. be something you'd want to do at home as well, which is why when people are changing their homes, it, it's something – it's a way of life. But are you seeing then a, a shift where it's no longer a way of life?
2: Well, it's hard for me to answer um, to a certain degree because I'm myself, I'm not a practicing nudist. And so, and those that I meet do practice still at home. And so they live in houses that allow for that type of um, living where again, people are protected from the view of neighbors. Um, but they do seem to spend a lot of time at nudist camps and colonies, which in some ways was actually the the original nudist of the United States in the late twenties and thirties, like Morris Parmalee, encouraged both and Parmalee referred to it as domestic with the stuff that you did at home was called domestic nudism. And it was this way of like making sure that it was this lifestyle all the time. And I do think people are still doing that. But the way that I was studying this material for the for the article was through, you know, this incredible um rich outpouring of nudist magazines, which existed throughout the 50s, 60s, and into the early 70s, but we don't actually have that type of cultural output any longer. Um, largely, that was tied to um, shifts in how pornography was published in the United States. And the nudist magazines actually lost a lot of viewers because th- th- there was a Purian gaze involved in collecting them, which is one of the reasons why people could sell so many of them. And so the nudist magazines kind of tapered off and you didn't have as many of them. And there used to be dozens of them. And they, and they sold. And they had circulations of sixty, seventy thousand 70,000 per, per per magazine. So you had a; it was a huge sort of cultural facet of nudist culture where a lot of these ideas could get shared, and that's how I can sort of see the culture unfolding. And that's really sh- shrunk up. Um, tremendously.
0: Yes, and you you could question as well, I guess. It, there, as you quite correctly said, there were a lot of magazines being sold because a lot of people buying them were not naturists or nudists. Uh, they were mm-hmm. buying it for a prurient interest. So was the content you were reading geared towards that audience or towards the actual people who were in the movement?
2: Overwhelmingly the material in the magazines was absolutely for people who are practicing nudists and naturists. Um, No question. Every issue pretty much had treatises on um, that the purposes of naked living wasn't just about being naked and it wasn't even necessarily about the body per se, but it was about health. It was about kind of trying to shed the culture of, you know, the uptight sexual mores that sort of twisted people up and made them unhappy and, 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 and made the society problematic, it was about also trying to shed class differences. You know, so much of class, social class, is demarcated by clothing and jewelry and all these sort of outside props and part of naturism and nudity and nudism was about shedding those things. Um, So it was a lot about health, and it was about sort of democracy and trying to imagine um, a socially more equitable world. And a lot of the magazines really talked a lot about that. And and in fact, there's a lot of text and, and the pictures tend to be about the body and nature, um, about families and family togetherness. And so it really, I mean, it'd be very difficult to see it as pornography at all. Um, some of the magazines though did have, more homoerotic content where you'd have particularly like sort of naked men together, not performing anything that would be seen as pornographic by certainly any contemporary standard. But given that this was a lot of these magazines to publish in the 1950s and early sixties, it was, just, it was clearly geared possibly to that, to a kind of gay audience. Um, and, the, and there were a very tight restrictions at that time of any sort of kind of queer pornography. So it kind of would make sense that this would be one avenue that but for the most part they really are very wholesome these well magazines
0: yes yeah, so although I, I have to disagree slightly because I don't think there is that you have a good gender balance um, or body type balance and that wasn't necessarily mm. what people were looking for mm-hmm. but you look at the magazines mm-hmm. from the 60s and you have a hard time finding one with a man on the cover. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there are very few with men on the cover. And I also will, and you're right, and I'll just jump in, that the kind of, when I think of the sort of original nudist magazines, like the nudist from the 30s, and then it evolved into Sunshine and Health, the original versions of those magazines did have, you know, overweight women in them and did have lots of men in them and, and not in any sort of homoerotic way, but just like, you know, people shoveling out a, a backyard to put in a pool or something, like sort of engaged in work. And when the magazines sort of fell under obscenity, anti-obscenity laws were essentially banned one of the judges in one of the famous cases said the reason why they were obscene was because the people in the magazines were not attractive. I mean, that was one of the reasons they were called out (laughs) for being obscene was because the judge You know, was a misogynist and didn't see overweight women as being attractive. So they did kind of shift, and in some ways, it was to sort of match up with the strange and always changing anti-obscenity laws here. Um, But also, I think speaking to your point of being relatively sexist and then having these very sort of always young and very attractive women at at the forefront, and you had spin-off magazines that tended to have more of that, that tended to look a lot more like girly mags, right, than nature's magazines.
0: Yes, yeah, some, some went very, very far, and it was there was always a uh, there was always a dichotomy. You don't necessarily see it in the magazines, but you do when you read the minutes of uh, meanings of the various organizations, because it, the dichotomy was between serving the publisher's need for maximum amounts of uh, advertising and, and circulation revenue and serving the f- ideology that they were trying to promote. Um, yes. They they needed yes. the money, but it often was running – it was counter to what they were saying, <laughs> and they recognized <laughs>
2: it. Yes, they did. They did. And um, – and I mean, and there were. I mean, I don't know how much we want to get into this here, but I mean, there were actual pornographers involved in like producing some of this imagery. Certainly, um, by the time we got to the early 1960s, but that's when the no matter what they were producing for the nudist magazines. By the certainly in the early 70s, couldn't compete with things like what Bob Guccione started producing. So, by the time he right. actually got into like hardcore pornography that could legally circulate in the US, no matter what you had in the na- nature's magazines that certainly flew in the face of any original um, intent and were, were, and were becoming more sexualized, it seemed very, very tame. So, thereby, the people who wanted the naked magazines as you know, skin mags didn't need nudist magazines anymore. They could just go buy this other stuff. And in some ways that meant the death of the, naked, the nudist magazine. It's a, stra- I mean, it's a strange kind of irony given that so many nudists and naturists early on were trying to find themselves as antithetical to that whole Purian sexual culture um, that was growing in the U.S. in the 20th century.
0: That's very interesting. So uh, it seems like we have uh, a, a little, little boom, a mini boom happening because a, a little over a year ago you had, uh, I don't know if you know, Stephen Harp uh, published a book mm-hmm. on uh, nudism in France and, or naturism in France and the history there. And then just this year, uh, Brian Hoffman did one on nudism in North America called Naked. Yes, yes. And so it seems – and those are all very good uh, scholarly books that uh, uh, are well-researched and very interesting to read at the same time. So you're going to fit yes, right and in. There's,
2: oh, thank you. And there's actually one more. There's another one. I think his name is John Williams. Do we have that right? He, he's about uh, – yes, turning to nature in Germany. So there's a, a third one that has come out in the last couple of years. So we have ah. Germany, France, and um, we have Brian Hoffman's wonderful book on the United States. And he really looks sort of looking at the relationship of nudism in the United States to obscenity law um and also kind of institutional nudism and so I think that um my book will sort of broaden that story a little bit more by looking at nudism a little bit earlier and taking the story up a little bit a little bit later. and so yeah, I know it is a boom result. well actually, I have a question for you. Why do you think there's so much interest in this? culture all of
0: a sudden. Well see I was gonna ask you that question. Why are all these books coming out now? Um, my 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 theory, you know, I'm reading these books. Um there is history most of these are history books right they're not yes, philosophy yes. books in the beginning of the movement they were philosophy books ideas uh, ideologies mm-hmm, that yes. kind of thing now we have history um i mean we're we're looking in you know a lot of clubs and and resorts in, in the united states and canada have been around 50 years or more and you're looking at almost a century since the first one started um so i think there is history um, it's a topic that just kind of grabs attention and, and is a mm-hmm. it, it it's it's an endlessly fascinating topic for our society uh, because we have we have this. About you know we're interested in nudity we're told we're not supposed to be and we're not supposed to do it but we like it and we pay to see it Um, so we're always we're always having this this uh, this you know dichotomy in our brains and our minds about it so it always makes for interesting material people are fascinated by it hence also this whole series of television shows, right? Uh, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Naked mm-hmm. Survival one. We have Buying <laughs> Naked. Uh, we have Dating Naked. Uh, it's tel- television shows. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess even from an academic standpoint, there is some, a lot of stuff to study now, I, s- I suspect, right?
2: I think so. I mean, no, I'm, I'm just really curious what you thought, because I, I agree with you completely. I mean, part of it is that we have a, de- a centuries worth of history to look back upon. I think there's also a, a, so much interest in it too both as academically but also for people who are practicing it because our culture has just which has become so much more sexualized through the internet through popular culture um through the easy access to pornography and then by extension a kind of pornographication of the society and i think that in some ways people are looking for moments in their own practice of their own lives for moments when the body isn't is not Sexualized in the way that our culture and commodified the way our culture is hanging it out right now in our global economy. And I think and in some ways it's a throwback to on um, the 20s and 30s where people felt that you know body was becoming too sexualized and they wanted to find ways in which they could express themselves and be free and natural without the, those hang-ups and without those pressures. And I feel like we're in another cycle of that. Does that make sense, even though the technologies are so radically different?
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I, know- I agree with yeah, you because ahead. more than ever, we have, uh, you know, a, a society which is actually quite comfortable with nudity. I mean, yes. just watch any television show on HBO. It seems you can't do one without nudity. Um, mm-hmm. it, and it's, it's it's you know, pretty acceptable. You can now have ads that are, you know, re are okay on billboards. You know, maybe it will raise a few eyebrows, but not a big issue. But it's coming, it's, it's coming with a huge amount of... Uh, sexuality, but even if there is no sexuality, is it, there's a big aspect of uh, beauty myth associated with it. And what I see the young people that come to Bear Oaks and, and uh, are very interested in the movement is they're comfortable with the nudity. They want to just get away with the, the sexuality and uh, objectification aspect.
2: That- yes, I think, no, I think absolutely. And when I've given talks about this material to students, undergrads and graduate students, I find that the students are just so blown away that they're like, wow, like you could, my, we, I show them pictures you know, of these kind of nudist environments where people have dinner parties and everyone's naked and they're like, the kids are so startled that you could have this naked environment that wasn't a sexual space. The ages, right. it's, it's it's both mind blowing to them that that's possible, and so appealing to them. And 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 I realize, wow, like, our culture has become the body's become so objectified that um the younger generation I think feels quite alienated from their own skin, and so that's one of the reasons why it seems so appealing to them. And I guess partially what's happening with all those academic outpouring is that we 're not that far removed from it ourselves, and so therefore it has this personal interest as well as an academic one you
0: no know, there are there are old clubs that you know young people just don 't feel welcome uh, because mm-hmm. there's very mm-hmm. old fashioned rules you know no holding hands and uh, you 've got to be interviewed before you 're allowed in and then you have to join and young this, The younger generation doesn 't want to join things there was There was a couple uh this summer that I was talking to, and I said, you know You've been here so many times. You've paid for a membership. I'll just like flip that over and make it a membership, and you can keep coming, and then it doesn't cost you anything. And he goes, "No, we don't really want to belong to anything." It's like, wow,
2: <laughs> wow. wow, okay.
0: I'll keep taking your money because we don't limit the number of day visits. Because what's the difference?
2: Yeah, it's, but that's it's, so fascinating. But not wanting to join anything like that's there's something sad about that to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, people issue labels, right, to a certain extent, and that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. You don't want to necessarily call yourself that. Um, it's complicated. Uh, we, we're very much more complicated than we used to be. The, the society was much more homogeneous before. So I ha- Endlessly fascinating. Yes. I have one last question for you. You you said you're not a naturist or a nudist. You obviously spent a lot of time at the American Nudist Research Library at Cypress Cove in Florida. You, you're never took the opportunity to go for a skinny dip or a swim or anything?
2: Oh no. I have I would say well this is the thing I have participated in I would guess nudist activities um, I think much of my life but I didn't think of it as being particularly um, unusual. So, sure, skinny dipping with friends and lakes um, where I grew up um, was a pretty pretty normal thing to be doing. And um, I had been, you know, naked at concerts and have been to um, nudist colonies or camps and resorts. That happened really kind of after my my research started. So I was kind of doing that more self-consciously. Um, but I, I don't consider myself a practicing nudist because I don't organize my life around um, being naked. That's the distinction I would make. But I also don't necessarily think of myself as a recreational nudist because I don't um, plan all of my vacations around it either. And so therefore, I just sort of feel like I don't, in don't, some ways, I don't feel absorbed into the culture, even though the culture certainly seems happy to absorb me. <laughs> but it's not that <laughs> I don't feel excluded from it. Um, so, yeah, but no, I've, I've, I've definitely partaken, but that just seemed like a natural thing to be doing. I mean, I guess maybe for me it was more of a bohemian hippie thing than um, a nudist thing. And so one of the things that was so fascinating was how, to me, a nudist culture and studying it in the United States going back to the 1930s was how, careful about categories people were like, we're, like thinking about trying to define what this was, right? Like the domestic nudist and the recreational nudist and like, you know, the card carrying nudist. And, um, and for me, in some ways, that's, it wasn't, it, it was, I think by, it was by necessity that people had to do that. Um and in my experience, and this is one of the things I'm really interested in studying, but it's very difficult. Is like, how do people sort of imagine, naked living but without all of those categories and perhaps without the memberships and without you know the institutionalized framework and i don't know that's actually very difficult to study because yeah you know there's no archives of that just how people just live
0: (laughs) well it becomes more of a sociological uh, study that you Mm -hmm. have to do at that point and that you have to go in the field
2: yes it's a very different thing. And I and mean, people did do that in the seventies. They did a particularly a lot of sociologists studied um nude beach culture. And that was a place where that, that type of work was done. And um I went to graduate school in San Diego and made a very famous um nude beach called Blacks, which I yep. frequented. And that was um also rather eye opening. But I also I don't remember thinking of it as nude as culture per se. It was just it happened to be a space where you could be naked.
0: I don't know if that makes any sense. But so, I, so let, if done. I can summarize, you, you've you've been to nude beaches, you've been to naturist nudist clubs, you've done other mm-hmm. new type of activities. You're mm-hmm. very comfortable with you and others, obviously, then being nude. You mm-hmm. have studied the movement; probably know more about it than a lot of nudists and naturists do, actually. And you are, I would suspect, believe in the core values, whether you call themselves that or not, which is of, you know, body acceptance of yourself and others and perhaps living a little bit more naturally. Does that make sense? Sure. So yes, absolutely. How are, how are you not a naturist? <laughs> I
2: don't know. Perhaps I am. Maybe I have. Maybe i am suffering from false consciousness. Well, <laughs> is it
0: that you don't want to have the label?
2: No, I... It's not even that. I think. I guess. I think it's. I have tremendous respect for people who call themselves nudists, and because of what I've studied and um, and experienced, that it does come with a certain degree of labor, right? I mean, it's it's it is you know making sure you some people are are a member of these organizations and participating in them, and. Um, communicating with other people in your network of nudists and involving oneself and, in, you know, freeing a beach here and there and being really, really very active politically and socially within one's nudist kind of circle, however small or big that might be. And I don't really do that. Um, I, I And so for me to claim the identity, I feel like I'd be posing. But, you know, I would feel like a, a that I'm, I'm, I'm taking
0: on a title I don't deserve. <laughs> well, so. yeah, but I, I think that's you, you. You perhaps have a slight bias because you, in your research, have been dealing with a lot of, of the leaders of the movement who are, mm-hmm. of course, by definition, therefore, highly, highly involved. But I would say that I've met a lot of people who call themselves naturists and nudists who are less experienced and less committed than you are.
2: Well, then maybe I am a nudist, Stefan, and I and I just have to embrace my identity, in which case I'm happy to do so.
0: Hey, there you go.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you've gotten another one.
0: <laughs> I have. I'll send your card in the mail.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This will be great. I look forward to it. It'll be a nice Christmas gift.
0: Yes, well, but see, that's one of the things is it, it, the ideology, um, you know, Maurice Parmley, as you know, wrote the first English language book uh, on the movement, and, and it did a really good job of it. And what he described is something you can do while fully clothed. Um, you you don't have to be nude to be a naturist, and that's one of the differences. Right. Uh, you know, in Europe, you would yeah. never say nudist; you would say naturist, or people would talk about practicing nudism within naturism, or as right. he, as Par- Parman Lee called it, gymnosophy. Um, so uh, right. when you're fully dressed, you can still be a naturist because it's how you, know, you yes. view the world, right?
2: It's true, actually. Lewis Mumford, I think, is a good, because he was a contemporary of Morris Parnelly, of course, was Mumford, the public intellectual and um, you know urban planner in the U.S., and he was really quite fascinated by nudism, but, and proposed nude beaches um, in some of the cities for which he did um, park plans. Um, Honolulu was a famous example of this, and he did not consider himself a nudist, and I'm not sure to what extent he practiced it, but he certainly had a very strong sense of relationship between nature and technology, and in fact had Term called biotechnics for that. So he was kind of. So in some ways, I feel like I identify a little bit more with Lewis mm-hmm. Mumford. Where I mean, if I stumble onto a new beach, I will participate in in nudity there. Um, but somehow, intellectually, you somehow don't think of myself as a participant. Although I really wanted to find out that Lewis Mumford was in fact in nudity. So I thought, what a coup for my book. But I have not been able to find any evidence <laughs> of it. I can't. I'm not going to do it now when the man has been dead. Over 20 years, or even more so at this point. <laughs> so,
0: but what would it take to determine yeah. that he was? He just didn't chose not to identify that way.
2: Yeah, and I don't, and I certainly, in all of the many volumes that he wrote didn't describe anything I would just dis- understand as being nudist living. Okay, like didn't it was, there wasn't any of these examples of designing a house or living nakedly. But but the fact that he was interested in having nude beaches um, written into design plans for. I mean he was clearly aware of it and was along thinking along the lines of like the health benefits and social benefits of you know shedding one's clothing, and that would make a lot of sense for someone like Lewis Mumford who was very interested in social democracy.
0: The the, the this has been an issue that's been interesting since the very beginning that I got involved. You know my, you know to, a quick sort of how I got involved in the movement is I. Um, when I was in university, we'd go skinny dipping where we were camping or at friends cottages and I'd enjoyed so much. I became the initiators. People started calling me a nudist and I looked into it and I visited, you know, as a result of my research, uh, which was hard to do by the way, without the internet back then, uh, I found a place to go and I, I liked it. Um, I chose to adopt the label, but then I discovered all these people who, you know, some were calling themselves naturists and some nudists. And then, because my is from Belgium and I go to Europe, I discovered over there was it. They call themselves naturists far more, but in some ways are less naturist based on what I'd been reading than people who call themselves nudist in the United States. And it, it, it's you start to realize that I have friends who call themselves vegetarians and eat chicken.
2: <laughs> it is interesting, and a lot of the stuff is hope. I'm going to work some of this out in the book, or at least try to. Um, sometimes people, nudism was really, um, I'm looking at this one set of cases of these particular men in the, in the interwar period between the first and second world war who went out to the desert to kind of play Indian basically, and sort of like get back to nature and like live how the American Indians did. And it was kind of a popular thing, particularly with European immigrants to do this. And some of them spent a lot of time like photographing themselves and then publishing these pictures in, um, in magazines that were not nudist magazines but just kind of like booster magazines for the region or versions of like national geographic and it was kind of this very sort of public display of, of the body and this alternative way of living and then in some certain cases the way they actually lived was very traditional frankly not particularly nudist and not even really back to the land but there was this kind of effort to kind of present this public persona of kind of rugged living. And um, I find that really interesting as well. well I don't it, know. It
0: is interesting. And it's, it's even the, the, this whole concept of natural is yes. is interesting because what is natural? Like, so I could say that, you know, being ashamed embarrassed and offended by your own image is not natural. Therefore, when I am comfortable with my body being naked, that's natural. And that's all I can, that's that's as far as I'm going. So sitting, Drinking beer in a you know, the the, the resort's restaurant nude is more natural. Uh, but then some people say, Well that's not natural. The place is paved and it's concrete everywhere. Because they have this right. idea that natural means that you have to be uncomfortable almost uh before you're you're natural.
2: Right. The natural has to be uncomfortable. And also and then I've also given talks where I've shown some pictures from the um, from the magazines and some of the ones that really catch people's eye are pictures of nudists um, in in the American Midwest who are skiing in snow in the nude. And people say, well, how is that a natural thing to be doing? Because at any time in history, people would have (laughs) not wanted to be cold. It's as deeply unnatural. So the notion of natural is is an interesting one and one that's, I think, also really problematic problematized by consumer culture, because you think of all the things that are sold to us in the name of being natural, natural beauty, natural youth, right? Like, and, and the things that we're then supposed to do to achieve that, which are not natural, like plastic surgery, for example, or lots yeah. of makeup, and these kinds of things. So that even the term natural has been kind of denatured.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it can mean so many things to so many people. I mean, I, I drive an electric car, um so but I drive a car.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I believe I am being more uh you know better on the environment, but of course it would be better to riding a, to ride a bicycle. But that's just a little too much for me, especially as the winters are kind of tough in Toronto. So
2: you're, you're, uh, yes, you're off the hook. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know and, and you know then you could be uh, going back to living with horses and buggies and all that stuff too. So it the, the natural thing is is not well defined and I I think you know again to the outside world when they imagine, nudists and naturists wanted to be more natural and then seeing them take cruise ships, they go, that's not natural. You guys are hypocrites.
2: Well, one of the things, I mean, I meant to mention earlier and and neglected to do so, that one of the things that intrigued me about the fact that you had these nudist living experiments in suburbia was that it fit in with this idea or curiosity I had about how people imagined natural living in modern urban environments, right? Because that's the real question for me. It's not too difficult to imagine going naked or being natural, like in the woods. um, You know, people doing going to a wilderness retreat or actually living in the woods and being kind of natural there. For example, like hunting your own food or, or trying to do this in some sort of anachronistic way. So we've been talking about the 20th century, but living in cities where you do have all the conveniences of modern life and then trying to be more natural in that space. That's a more interesting set of questions for me. And I think it's one that we're struggling with as a society now, whether it's about nudity or not, because all of our green living efforts, like you mentioned, the electric car, people swapping out all their light bulbs for more green options. A lot of this are solar, going solar power. Yeah. It's about it's about trying to be more energy efficient and energy efficient in many ways is a stand-in for kind of trying to, to live more naturally. And you see it in dietary practices, right? So many people becoming vegetarians, people becoming law food enthusiasts. And if you look at the, the sort of discourse and the language people use, it's all about sort of natural food or natural living, a real living, right? That would be another word people will use, the living in a real way as opposed to some sort of unreal real way. And I, and I think some of it sure is marketing, but a lot of it, I think people are truly struggling with these things. I mean, well, really trying to figure out how are we going to survive on our little planet?
0: <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to, to there's no solution. Um, and, you know, on my other side, uh, I, you know, I have this business, we do education for architects online and, you know, we're very involved with the U S green building council and LEED. That's a very big topic for education. And, um, and people criticize it because it's not perfect but there is no perfect solution at least it's something yes. what I like about lead is it doesn't try to tell you you have to do it this way it gives you points so you know you could have a lot of points by making a whole bunch of electric parking spots in your in your parking lot um, but have a, a building which is not that well insulated you could still end up with a good number of points because you reuse the flush you know the toilets and you when you flush them it, it, everything's compromised and now we're learning of course in cities that intensification is if, of cities and urbanization is actually better for the environment then sprawling out and destroying all the countryside
2: exactly right exactly right that in fact it is better to kind of imagine us living in a hive right Because like the hive of yeah. the city than it is to, to sprawl out which has been absolutely devastating environmentally and economically I mean we have many examples of that and um yeah, in some ways that was actually Lewis Mumford's original set of ideas in the 1930s was that people should live in cities, but that's where we belong. So that's our natural state, not...
0: Yes, that's so we- very interesting. So this is part of an upcoming book.
2: Yes, it is. Um I am delighted I'm going on sabbatical in just a few days, really, and we'll be spending the next eight months finishing up this this book that's going to look at naked living experiments in the United States, um, looking at the desert, looking at the beaches, looking at um, camps and colonies, and of course, looking at naked suburbia, of which this essay um, is a big part.
0: So if you want to read the article from Sarah, um, you can, but you might, you can't just download it from the internet, because uh, it, journal articles, either you have to pay for them, or you have to have access to a subscriptions. Now, I'll provide the link in the show notes, and that'll tell you the details of the, the, sh- the, the article itself, and if you want, you can pay. It's a few bucks to get the article itself. Um, alternatively, though, I would imagine a lot of libraries, certainly would imagine most university libraries... Uh, or college as it's called in the U.S., would have access to uh, the journal article. Um, But I imagine a lot of... Uh, City or town libraries might have access to it as well through a computer system. Um, Most libraries now, you use your library card and through your computer at home, you can access a wealth of resources. These articles are all, many of them are not printed anymore. The journals are just published electronically and are part of these massive databases. So I'll provide a link and hopefully you can uh, get to it and have a chance to read it. But please don't ask me to send it to you because... That would be a violation of uh, copyright, and uh, I'm trying to respect the fact that people are working and trying to make money publishing these things, and I hope you do as well. So that's all for this episode of The Naturist Living Show, and the first episode edited and put together by Sean Mitchell. So thank you, Sean, for making my life easier and making it possible to have more frequent shows and more frequent episodes. Again, my name is Stephane Deshain. I'm your host for this podcast and the owner of Bear Oaks Family Nature Spark. Please keep sending your comments and your suggestions. Uh, The show's email address is naturistliving at bearoaks.ca. That's B A R E, of course, dot C A because we're in Canada. And the show's website for those links I mentioned earlier is naturistliving, one word, dot bearoaks, B A R E O A K S dot C A. Again. So you can also leave a comment. Feel free to call. You call the for, the phone number for Bear Oaks, which is either toll-free 1-888-373-9124 if you're in North America, or country code 1-905-473-6060, or through Skype. Just Bear Oaks is our Skype name. And that will put you in the main phone system for Bear Oaks Family Nature Park. And the show's extension is extension 333. You can record it as many times as... You can erase it and start over again, and you can delete it if you're not happy. So no pressure. But if you'd like to record a comment, I would be happy to put it on the show. So join us again in a little while for the next episode of The Naturist Living Show.
1: This episode of The Naturist Living Show was brought to you by Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. Traditional naturist values in a modern setting. Traditional values means that naturism is more than just taking your clothes off. It is a life philosophy with physical, psychological, environmental, social, and moral benefits. Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park strives to promote those naturist values in a modern setting that provides the amenities and services that our members and visitors expect. Free your body, free your mind. Learn more at www.bearoaks.ca.